This is Hard Rock Saves a Space Dandy, a retro science fiction podcast focused on multimedia from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm your host, Dave, and welcome back to Season 1, Episode 5. This episode will be covering Mirai Ninja, uh, also known as Cyber Ninja in the West. This was filmed in 1988 by director Amamiya Keita and will also mark the end of Season 1. As this film's narrative is a little bit more compact, uh, we'll begin with a, um overview of the plot and then discuss a few of the uh, specific scenes. Also, I was lucky enough to uh, run across a making of short documentary on the film. Uh, it was about 20 minutes long, and unfortunately it um, was not English subtitled, and my Japanese is admittedly not the best, so I sort of made do with the YouTube auto-translate and pieced things together uh, between that and my own understanding of Japanese. So I'll interject a few points that the director made on the film um, as they come up uh, in the discussion. Also, unlike the coverage of the live-action Zerum films as well as the animated Zerum um, series, my access to Mirai Ninja was a little bit more limited and I was only able to obtain a, a poor DVD transfer of the US release of Cyber Ninja. So this is, it was a dubbed version. Um, and even just judging from the Japanese characters on the screen, um, the written characters, I should specify. Uh, the naming conventions, what, what they used in the script um, for the dub are a little off. Um, so a few of the references that I may make while switching between um, the clarifications I was able to find watching the documentary um, on the making of and then uh, just going by the dub. So really that's just some advanced warning uh, on if I stumble over any of the names um, that's just a little a bit of uh, error between you know what I heard as I was watching it and then um, what the actual names for the characters are I'll do my best not to get them mixed up so with uh, that out of the way let's take a look at the general narrative of the film based on the opening uh, credit crawl the the film itself is uh, it's set once upon a time in the distant future. So there's a little bit of inspiration from Star Wars there. Um, and I, I really kind of enjoy that idea uh, of it being a little bit like a fairy tale um, with that phrasing. And unfortunately, while there's further text on the screen, it's... Um, it's all in uh, Japanese, and, well, I, I <laughs> wasn't able to read it, um, and they did not subtitle that section, uh, and there's no narration uh, over that bit, so we have to kind of just get the rest of the general opening scene um, based on context, and, well, it doesn't, doesn't let us down um, on that part, so... The film itself um, 
opens on a, the, the scene of a, a battle or what's going to be a battle um, between two opposing forces. Uh, and it's set in a valley lined by, um, I'm guessing it's like volcanic sand. Um, I don't know, whatever you would call that. It's, uh, I mean, well, regardless, it makes for a good set piece. The two opposing forces, uh, well, they're introduced as the Suabe clan, uh, and this is the, or these are the uh, human protagonists, and the antagonists they're they're battling against are the Dark Overlords, army of mechanical warriors, uh, who all turn out to be robot ninjas, um, and not quite the cyber ninja of the title, but you could be, I guess slightly mistaken in your belief otherwise um as they are cybernetic ninja warriors um just not the coolest one um they are unfortunately for them uh the cannon fodder of the dark overlords army and i mean that that being the case they aren't much different in terms of um battle capability um or fighting strength as the Suabe clan's um, own foot soldiers. Uh, both sides end up um, suffering attrition um, in, in this battle. And it's quite a bit more of a melee sword fighting clash than um, m- you might be expected um, to witness um in a futuristic setting so instead what they've they the uh, what the director has done is design everything in an attempt to recreate or at least draw parallels to period pieces uh titles um like Rashomon or the Seven Samurai, uh, I think specifically uh, Hidden Fortress. So some of the older um, Akira Kurosawa classic films, um, and and that's what the design on the on the side, I guess, of the Suabe clan um, re- they resemble after a fashion that uh, Edo period. Um, costume design uh and in their in some of their weaponry uh and and their their battlefield um command post i guess you would you would call it it's uh mainly cloth barriers um and well tents as as well as uh general like ammunition storage um temporary facilities uh, just on the ridge above the um, volcanic valley so given that we're missing um, a little bit of the introduction uh, at least as far as the narration would have been concerned with um, the the aim of the dark overlord uh, is to well, I guess control the country and the Suabe clan um, I don't know if they're the remaining uh, rebellion, uh, or just a example of the remaining 
um, rebellion against this um, encroach of the Dark Overlord, but uh, they're attempting to, the Suave clan, I should clarify, are attempting to stop the resurrection of the Dark Overlord. And we find out in a, a scene a little bit later. And their forces are uh, they're dwindling um, on the human side, uh, whereas the cybernetic ninjas, um, well, I guess their forces just keep increasing uh, because we find out that they're able to mechanize um, people that they've uh, either, I guess, kidnapped or just taken hostage after the uh, ensuing battle. Which is, of course, what we, we get happening here, uh, and the impetus for the creation of our um, title character, Mirai Ninja. Now, aside from the, well, the robot ninjas running around, um, and some of the cannons that the, uh, I guess, rifles at this point that the Suabe clan are using, um, the some of the other indicators that this isn't quite a um, period piece as it otherwise would appear uh, are the Suabe clan each have um, communication earpieces uh, that they have, ones that vaguely resemble um, the scouters from Dragon Ball Z. Uh, also, judging from the uh, making of video that I watched, the director mentions that it, I'm not sure if it was accident or design, but the Suabe clan um, clothes that they're using under their armor were perhaps unintentionally all, all female garments. It's, it sounded like the director said the designer was only able to obtain um large amounts of uh, female clothing and so that's what they used for on, on set or maybe they weren't aware that those were um, female clothes and while, while that's something that's not readily apparent to a western audience um, that certainly would mark the the film as not a generic um, period piece we also learned that to, I guess, one of the requirements for the resurrection of the Dark Overlord is a flesh and blood, like a host body uh, that the Dark Overlord needs to exist in um, our, our dimensional realm. Um, we do meet the Dark Overlord, but it's on a, um, it's a digital, I guess, representation. Um, he's broadcast his image uh, on a, like a silk screen uh, when he's talking to his um, forces um, and, and I guess more specifically uh, his the, the commanders he's using uh, to control the cybernetic ninjas in their bid for conquest I, I thought it was a pretty neat touch uh, although I think I would prefer had it been a, a, like a voice voiceover segment rather than seeing him um, directly on like a screen, um, just like on a, on a projector screen. It, um, I don't know, the, the idea of the 
Dark Overlord was cooler uh, when he was just in just being mentioned versus when you actually see him. It's a little bit of a letdown. So I think that had they left him like a disembodied voice uh, would have been a little more interesting um, based on the design elements of his commander uh, on, on Earth. Uh, we get a good idea of what the Dark Overlord would have looked like uh, and the actual projection of the Dark Overlord doesn't quite match um, his Dark General um, or I guess more specifically uh, the Bishop of Darkness is the <laughs> the dub title of uh, Raime um, the I guess it's his Bishop of Darkness um, his, his commander on Earth and the sub commander, or I don't know, I don't think it gives us a specific ranking title, but um, the one that Raime directly uh, charges with control of the Cyber Ninjas is uh, Shoki, and for some reason the dub goes with Shoki, and I can only think of like it's you know. It's basically like a chess, a game of chess. Um, but they should have just called him Shoki. That would have been fine, I think. And that, I guess, brings us to the design uh, or overall design of both of these characters. Uh, Raime is dressed sort of like a priest, maybe? Um which is, I guess, why they called him Bishop of Darkness. Uh, but he has um, spider, like, ten spider legs um, poking out of his back. Um, and then is clad in, like, dark robes. Uh, also, he's his face has been painted white. And it's sort of is used to like accent his features um, because around, around there's black like face paint around um, around his eyes and then his eyelids themselves are like bright red on the underlid um, I don't know overall it's a it's a very effective look um, definitely could indeed be a bishop of darkness um, and he has a cool mechanical hand that uh, the director sort of didn't want to he says he didn't want to give him like a specific weapon uh wanted him to be using this sort of a esp or telekinesis um because i guess that that seemed cooler uh also the the mechanical hand he has is a device that accents or not accents but um enhances uh spiritual power and they they use a lot of uh, rotoscoping to kind of add um, like little electrical, like electrical, it's a spiritual um, sort of smoke uh, coming out of the gauntlet when he's when he's using it as a weapon. Um, I guess, and or more to the point, since it's a spiritual, the the smoke comes out and it's, it's shaped uh, as like insects and animals. Uh, I don't know; it's it's pretty effective. 
looking anyway. Um, it's cool. And then we have Shoki, who the director says was partially inspired by Predator. Um, the the American film came out in 1987, so the year just prior to um, Mirai Ninja. So it would have been very fresh uh, in the sci-fi mindset of, of, of fans. Uh, and the original designs of Shoki, I guess Shoki's armor, had been red. Um, they ended up using white armor here. Uh, and I think that's to contrast against um, the, the the design of our title character, Mirai Ninja, which we'll get into shortly. Uh, also, uh, I guess in reference to the Predator design elements, uh, Shoki has long... Um, sort of mechanical tentacles um, coming from the back of his head. He's a, a good two heads taller um, than all the other characters and has a sort of humanoid um, mask on the front of his helmet, which he, like the fa the upper part of the face, the cheekbones and the to top of the skull, um, they can extend and he uses that to uh, sort of inject controlling energy um, into the cybernetic ninjas. And I don't know. It's all it's all um, it's all pretty pretty cool. And these are design elements that we see uh, not repeated directly, but um, definitely inherent in his his later works. So this is a good. Uh, sort of benchmark for um, Mamiya Keita's like, sensibilities and what he likes to do and sort of um, use these, you know, historical influences and these cultural touchstones and give them that technological spin, um, that, I, that idea of advancing trends, um, while still kind of keeping them as identifiers uh, for the audience. And one other thing about the making of video, it, uh, it's a series of interviews with the director, but it's um, overlaid uh, on footage of the film, um, some behind-the-scenes footage as well. But I think my favorite aspect of it is it um, contains referential art, um, art from the character design works and pictures of what they had intended um, many of the characters to look like. And just based on that, uh, Raimi, the, the translation between um, original character design and then what's presented on the screen was almost a one-to-one. -one. There's, there's not really a, a larger difference. So they were able to realize um, that design, and in the, in the same case with uh, Shoki, uh, aside from the armor he's wearing, or I guess his body being um, painted white as opposed to the early red design, um, it's again almost a one-to-one -one, um, translation, which is really cool that they were able to do that. It's not something that you, I think, come across too often, um, where their intentions you know, are able to be realized. Uh, in, in the final product. 
Now, it's also in these scenes um, here in the, the enemy's fortress that we get a little bit better look at some of the, sub, the, the rank and file of the cybernetic ninjas and how they're, uh, how they're kind of represented visually. Um, they s- seem to swarm uh, over the fortress and kind of crawl around like like spiders or bugs, um, so that echoes some of the design elements we you know we've seen in um, Rime. But also, the the director had mentioned that when you're looking at Rime um, or, or a lot of these other characters, that you sort of want to question, uh, you know, is he a human with robotic parts, or is he some sort of you know, monster with these spider legs that are, they're organic. They're not um, mechanical looking. Uh, or is a combination of these, like, three things. Um, this The mechanical human um, and, like, the monster. So that those are all echoed in, like, the behavior of the um, the ninjas. They don't, uh, they, like I mentioned, they crawl around. Even when they're moving on the battlefield, they sort of they run about with their arms extended to the sides um, held out it looks a little bit like a bird like a like a crow if you would hold your arms up but not actually flap them um, it's a little disturbing and then of course they they, they run um, with sort of a knee uh, like a high raised knee movement um, and these are thing you know this came out in uh, 1988 so the animated Zerum films um when it's showing the the robot soldiers of the um Tedan uh, Tibidai, um corporation they're almost like one to one translations or or built upon um, of the idea of these separate ninjas and you get the me- mechanical forces um, in in the world of Zerum. Um, so I wonder if any of these things could be specifically connected, especially since this is, um, you know, it's set in the future. So that would be something interesting to um, find out uh, in the in the, the interviews of the making of, the director did mention that he had wanted to um, return, I think, to the world of uh, Mirai Ninja. But again, that's... I think that that could be something like a personal intention, but also something that you just say uh, when you're doing these interviews because he mentions a lot of that um, uh, in, in reference to Zerum. You know, he's made these creations, and of course it'd be nice to return to that, but, you know realistically um and budget you know budget concerns um finding the producers to to sort of back those kind of things i don't know how successful this was um, when it was released uh they did um co-release a uh a video game at the same time in um, 1988 uh also it's a like a it's a spin-off story um, of Mirai Ninja, so I guess it's his adventures in either tandem to the film or uh, as a continuation, maybe of the ending of the film. Um, um, that was one thing I wasn't able to get hold of was that was that game. Although I think there are some 
playthroughs um, on YouTube that I will probably get around to watching at least. Now that we've made it this far uh, into the episode, uh, well, I guess we'll turn our attention to the title character of uh, Mirai Ninja. In the film, he's named Shiranui, and we find out, or I think it's sooner than the, the characters in the film, that uh, Shiranui is, in fact, um, one of the members of the Suabe clan. Uh, he was one of their better fighters um, in the opening scene, which took place, I believe, three years after the current events in the film. Um He's one of two brothers that are introduced in the beginning. Uh, the older brother, in fact, um, Hayukaku, uh, and his younger brother, uh, Jiromaru, will also eventually become one of the main characters um, that we follow along with anyway. Uh, so Shiranui, um, as the Mirai Ninja, uh, is ostensibly a member of now of the Dark Overlord's army, but he retained, I think, enough of his humanity after the whatever the conversion process is uh, to be against what the Dark Overlord represents and has been engaged in his own um, guerrilla warfare over the last three years to deal with um, preventing, I guess, the Dark Overlord's resurrection. Uh, but he also, at the same time, has lost his human memories. Uh, he has the, the in, I think, the intent of them, uh, but no specifics. So he doesn't remember who he is or uh, his original position in the Suabe clan or any of his family or any, basically anything like that. He's just operating on instinct, knowing um, in his heart of hearts that the uh, Dark Overlord's army is... Um, at odds with uh, the goals that he maybe previously had uh, when he was, you know, you know, in possession of a human body. And um, Shiranui is one of the few characters where his original design element did change um, in the in the, the course of being, you know, translated to a, a film character. Um, the overall look didn't change and what they ended up doing was the the original artwork has him in like white armor and for the film it's like a dark blue um and from what i could understand the um the director mentions that this is because uh the expressions and what they wanted him to convey uh on on camera didn't come across as well in the in I guess when they were testing like, oh, the white color scheme versus the darker one. Um, also, uh, they 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 do a little bit of this with um, Shoki, but while the character was supposed to sort of be stoic and uh, I guess just you know, overall cool that cool factor. Um, what they needed to do uh, to, for him to convey emotions um, aside from a general like pantomime that you would get because he has a, a full um, face helmet so you can't see um, the actor's actual face. But what they did 
was they um, added in moving parts to the the ninja mask and the he has a sort of like a, a red glowing eye slit which is is a design that we see repeated in um in Zerum uh, both both live action films um and a little bit in the animated version but the eye pieces uh can they move and they are they narrow um i guess in anger or consternation and then the, the mouth part, uh, this was not really a mouth, but the, the mask bit can kind of widen. Uh, so through those, they can convey a little bit more emotion than just the, the Im- immovable helmet would have um, done. And I, I, I watched the movie a few times um, in preparation for this, and I, I think I missed any mouth movements. Um, but the the eye portion um, was fairly clear. Uh, again, that's I think more due to the the transfer that I watched. It was um, very grainy, uh, unfortunately. So some of the some of the minor details I think were lost in that transfer. Okay, I think we'll take a short break here, uh, and then when we, when we return, we'll go through some of the specific scenes and some of the notable details that I, f- I found uh, while watching the film. up with Shiranui before we move on to a few of the other main characters. Um, one thing that I didn't want to forget to mention, there's a scene in which we actually we get two scenes in the film where we're viewing events through uh, Shiranui's director perspective. Um, this is, again, this only happens twice in the film. Um, but one interesting thing I find is that uh, because he's cybernetic, his view is given as um, a heads-up display. Uh, it, it's a little bit reminiscent of the scenes in Terminator, um, and I guess they may have been taking a look at Predator at the time since they've already used that as one of the design choices in um, the character of Shoki. But in regard to Shiranui um, specifically, at the bottom of uh, his HUD, there's a wheel, and on this wheel, uh, it's inscribed the characters of the well, it's the Chinese zodiac, but um, it's the, the Japanese rendition of those characters. Now, originally, um, in the scene, it it's a spinning dial, and it settles on a specific character um, as Shiranui's meeting with, uh, I believe he's meeting with um, Akagi. So I looked up the characters, and um, I, I needed to find out that those were specifically um, what they were initially, and of 
course, I, as I mentioned, they they are the animals of the zodiac. Um, the best I could come up with, because my context is limited in the situation, uh, is that each of the animals also uh, corresponds with a specific uh, cardinal direction on the compass, and the sign it settles on is the sign of the ox. Uh, which is the northeast. So I'm thinking that it's just a direction finder uh, because there's not, even though it happens a second time, there really isn't any other um, features that would kind of give you a better idea of why it's going on to a specific character. So aside from it ascribing characteristics of the ox zodiac to um Akagi, I, I don't know what else it could be um, referring to, but it was, they make a point of um, showing it uh, each time. So it has to be important. And I'm imagining, like I said, that, that it's the uh, direction finding um, significance instead. Now, there's a lot of other information that's crops up on the heads up display um, unfortunately again it's all in Japanese and they didn't they, they chose not to uh, or maybe were unable to um, transcribe that into subtitles the the text appears on the screen very quickly uh, and it it's very small again this it's possibly um, fault of the the specific VHS transfer um, that it was nearly illegible um, even pot just trying to pause the screen to watch it it didn't um clear anything up the uh the screen itself would artifact a little bit too much so whether any of that was pertinent information or um flavor text uh, as is usually the case um when they put a lot of text in these even in uh western films but it does i think bear noting that there's a lot more information um in, in both of these heads-up display, um, point-of-view screens, and plus they just, again, just look pretty cool. And unfortunately, neither of those scenes were elaborated on um, when I watched the making of video, which is a shame. I would have liked to have seen if they had attributed specific details to that, uh, but it could just be something cultural that I'm I'm missing, unfortunately. Um, if anyone has an idea, uh, let me know. That would <laughs> be super helpful, and I would appreciate it. In the meantime, uh, we'll move on. I did just mention the character of uh, Akagi, so we'll uh, dig a little bit more into him. This is a, um, a mercenary that's hired by the uh, Suabe clan, and he agrees to um, rescue the princess, who I uh, was remiss in mentioning that she's been kidnapped, of course, by the uh, Dark Overlord's army um, in order to resurrect the said Dark Overlord um, as a sacrifice and potentially the host body that he would use to um, appear in this plane of existence. And rescuing the princess isn't the first time that he's worked uh, with the Suave clan. Um, initially, he's hired on to just help with the battle against the mechanized ninja army um so originally he's being paid one gold piece per uh, mecha ninja head that he retrieves and he's been dispatched on a few um, smaller like gorilla missions um, and that's where he originally encounters um shiranui in a sort of a one-off um, battle it's only a 
battle in between, but he, he finds out that um, Shiranui is, uh, if not working for um, the Dark Overlord's army, he's not specifically on the side of the Suave, um, at least not at this point. So in order to um, rescue the princess, he realizes that it's, it would be too difficult to um, rush in with you know a large force. So he informs um, the, the clan, I guess it's the acting clan head or the general of the clan, that uh, he would take five men um, on a sort of covert mission to um, go rescue the princess um, from the evil or the dark overlord well he's evil too i guess um the dark overlord's castle uh and to to select these men this is um aside from the only interesting um hud pov scenes and this is probably my favorite scene in the film so uh we mentioned earlier that each of the suave clan fighters have that um communication piece uh kind of just over one ear uh, on the on the communication device there's two blank screens that display um, numerals on them and uh, these numerals go from zero uh, up to 99 now what those indicate are um, power levels uh, of the person wearing the communication device i don't know why um, in the universe you would need to display that to other people um, but they, they do. <laughs> and, um, in order to find out the worthiness, I guess, of, um, of these five people that he's picked, uh, he has them stand in line, or I guess the, uh, the volunteers for the mission, because more, more than five have volunteered for this. Um, he has them stand in line and each of them will, uh, let out a, a battle cry, uh, a kiai. And the device on there, uh, of course, that they're wearing will measure the, um, the I guess it's the latent ability that they have um, or that they're able to generate at any um, given time. Now, we find that this is not just your current ability, but I think the upper limit of your potential um, that you could pretend that you could, I guess, generate in, in battle. Um, it doesn't come across as... A specific capability um so we don't see exactly why they need a power level ranking but uh it it fits i think the theme and the the overall aesthetic uh, that the film has um so with the scene in particular um the part i think that was amusing to me and this may not be as amusing um, in the original Japanese, but in the dub, it's it's the the guys doing the voices for um, these volunteers. It was just it was great. Um, so he Akagi goes down the line and has each of them, of course, uh, do their their battle cry. And the the dubbed cries, I'll I'll see if I can try to mimic it. They um, the first guy is just you know he lets out a pretty good yell. It's just like oh, and. Then the subsequent guy, and it you know gives the numbers on the they're cycling up on the um device, and then the next guy's just like, huh. and then the following like the two or three people are just like, huh, huh. It's <laughs> I I'm probably not conveying it um properly, but if you're able to watch this scene, um, 
it's I don't know it's super hilarious um the the voices are great but um in accordance with their uh minimalistic battle cries uh, their power levels aren't uh enough to um grant them access to the mission so out of the five that he needs i believe four of them um are are passable however uh one of the volunteers there that's um the most uh adamant about going but not able to fulfill the the, the power ranking requirements uh is the um the brother of our cyber ninja so that's uh jiromaru and our other main character aside from akagi now jiromaru when he i couldn't read the um the power level he gives off the, the initial time it, the camera actually wasn't turned enough to uh show um what number it arrived at but we can guess based on the successful uh volunteers that around 80 um, is what he's looking for so 80 and above um, I, mean, I believe he, he may mention it actually but um, Jiromaru does not succeed at that uh, however in his entreaty in, in to um, go on this mission regardless uh, he you know he's saying that he'll just volunteer and he'll just volunteer his body to, to save the um, the princess of the clan and uh, you know Akagi is denying him but Jiromaru is so um, vehement in his insistence that he go on this mission, uh, it actually raises the the power level um, up to the max of 99 uh, as he's shouting his willingness to go um, on this versus his initial um, battle cry, which <laughs> was rather pathetic. Um, so he does make the, the cut in this instance, and goes along with the four other members of his clan. So there's six men in total uh, that attempt to go rescue the princess. Now, of course, the mission they're going on is uh, rather urgent. Um, the Suabe clan scouts have found out that uh, there's a, a timetable that they're on, um, or they will be operating under uh, for the movie the in the next day. So they have basically... 24 hours to rescue the princess because um, there will be a solar eclipse uh, and that's what the Dark Overlord is, has been waiting for. Um, according to Raime, the magnetic rays um, from, from heaven, so from the, from the sky, uh, are enough to potentially revive his Dark Overlord. But um, Raime and uh, Shoki are also aware that uh, they could be attacked by Shionui because the these same magnetic rays that would uh, revive their master could potentially be enough to restore um, Shionui's human memory. And while the Cyber Ninja is already a formidable foe, um, without his human memory, you know, com- completely reconstructed, um, were he to have a full sense of purpose um he would be much more dangerous to them and to their chances of uh reviving their their dark master so armed with this um timetable um akagi uh and the five other um 
members, they kind of race through the forest to get to the um, Dark Fortress, I guess we could call it. There's a, they didn't really give it a name. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty foreboding structure. It's uh, an old-style um, Japanese castle, but it's up on... Uh, sort of stone stonework. Uh, and it's raised up off of the ground. I don't know the distance. It's, I don't know, maybe, maybe like 100, 100 meters. It's very, very high up. Um, so they, f- they find the way to get to the castle. They can't directly um, ascend the, uh, the structure. So what they'll need to do is find a, a, one of the way stations and the... Um, the same flying uh, shuttle that was used to kidnap the princess, they will use to uh, invade, like they'll steal the shuttle uh, to, to make their way into the castle. But first they have to, of course, um, get access to the shuttle. And this is where they uh, meet up eventually with Shiranui, who is, I don't know if his plan's exactly the same, or if he's just gonna climb the castle because he probably can, but uh, he, he, they run into each other um, while they're in the um, sort of like an underhaul uh, to get to sneaking into the um, shuttle bay, I guess. I don't know what you would call it, but that's <laughs> what it basically amounts to. Now, in the scene just before they um, meet up with Shironui, they are sneaking through these sort of underhauls, and the ninja army has um, probably one of the cooler uh, mechanical designs. There's these floating glowing blue um, sentries that uh, fire out a, a beam and unfortunately it's a, it streams by very fast and it's full of kanji that I could not read. So I'm thinking it means like it's a prohibited entry, um, something to that effect. Uh, would be also good to know what those say. Um, let's say again, they, they go by very fast and more, I think, just it's cool to look at. But on the other hand, the the, the robo... Cyber, the robo ninjas, well, I guess they're all, whatever. The mechanical ninjas that the uh, group runs into, um, the Suabe clan fighters um, are armed with shoulder-mounted cannons. Um, again, these are semi-anachronistic. They fire um, energy beams, but uh, look like wooden sort of, you know, um, powder cannon um, style. <laughs> uh, and the, when the when the beams connect against the um, cyber ninjas, it it flares up uh, two Japanese characters on the, on the chest of the, the struck um, ninja. The first one I was unable to read, but the second one um, basically is saying sealed. So there's sort of a um, directed uh, EMP kind of beam, um, and it, it, it disables the mechanical components of the ninjas and they just sort of smoke and fall to the side but when they put all the symbols on there they're all rotoscoped so again i think that the the special effects team and 
we'll find this again later, but in the making of documentary, the director stated that it took a lot of more time than I think maybe he was anticipating uh, to to draw, um, or to, I guess to do all the rotoscoping just took a long time. Um, there's quite a lot of it in the film, so I think in post-production that was um, one of the uh, more time-consuming bits that they dealt with as far as special effects. And then um, one other part that I didn't want to forget, which I, I would have if I hadn't... <laughs> put it in my notes specifically um the first time that akagi meets with um shionui he he realizes that or i guess he recognizes that there's a um there's a the crest of a crane uh, on um shionui's helmet and that comes into play at this point here because he had met him earlier in the, in the film in the forest but um jirumaru uh is he's been running around with his brother's sword um and it's a they call it a, a spirit sword. It um, it also on the um, on the tsuba of the sword has uh, a crane crest as well. So uh, Akagi is a smart man, and he you know makes the connection that um, Shironui is potentially um, uh, Jiromaru's uh, older brother who had been uh, lost um, in the first battle three years earlier. He hadn't met the man personally. But um, based on the accounts of the other uh, clan members, uh, he understands that um, Jiromaru's uh, older brother was an accomplished swordsman and someone that uh, had a a fairly high standing as a warrior um, in the clan itself. And the fighting style that Shironui exhibits when when he's when he's, Akagi sees him, is uh, exemplary um, and above most of the, the ability that, he, that they encounter with the, um, the rank-and-file mechanical ninjas who are generally um, less powerful than, I think, the, the Suabe um, clan fighters. But that I, I think that this point there is where we see the power levels um, kind of come into play because the five men, or I guess the, f- the four men and Jomaru, um, they are generally evenly matched when they're fighting one-on-one with the mechanical ninjas. It's only when they encounter two or three um, at the same time that these men um, ha- have a little bit more trouble and even here uh, in this like introductory fight scene, two of them, uh, two of the men are killed uh, by a drone and a ninja, and then a, um, I don't know if it's an Inugami or a fox. It was pretty hard to tell. The scene was darkly lit. Um, darkly lit. It was poorly lit. Uh, and uh, the action's a little bit frantic with the, the camera doing a lot of um cuts and panning across uh, the, the, few, the few different men. I had to actually watch this scene a few times just to see who was being killed, kind of when. Um, it, it wasn't very specific about it. Uh, regardless, the... Um, we'll just go with Fox. The, <laughs> the uh, Fox Mecha is killed by um, Shionui. And at that point, uh, there's only Hiromaru... Um, Akagi and Shironui left to uh, continue their mission to rescue the princess. 
the three of them uh, move on through the sub fortress or little station um, in order to get a hold of the shuttle. And eventually they run into um, Shoki as well as higher ranking, I guess, um, mechanical ninjas. These ones have, uh, I guess, the, the rest of the ninjas are generally um, monochrome. They're all like dark blue and black um, colored costumes. The, uh, these specific, I guess, stronger ninja, um, they have uh, red hoods, and maybe one of them was dark, or like a brighter blue. But um, the red hooded ninja has like a single optic lens, so he has a like, sort of cyclops look, um, and he can fire a giant beam out of it. So <laughs> that um, that was that was fun. A little bit that happens there. Um, we also find out that uh, Shoki's tentacle hair uh, is prehensile, and he's able to use it to uh, stab people. And that's, oh, I guess, earlier one of the um, Suabe clan fighters um, tries to sneak up on him. Uh, or I guess he'd been. We thought he was killed, but he had a little bit of life left back in him and he tried to backstab Shoki but was um, instead run through by the very sharp tentacles we also see uh, when the ninjas aren't able to follow orders or uh, in this case I think they one of them's complaining asking why they're guarding um, this little shuttle when they should all be preparing for their uh, Dark Overlord's return instead. Uh, and Shoki takes exception to that, extends his his face plate um, and kind of fires out this sort of blue mist, which when it uh, comes in contact with the mechanical ninja, the ninja explodes. Uh, we see this again um, shortly thereafter um, when Shoki is having a showdown with Shiranui, he tries the same um, explosive technique on him, but um, Shiranui is a little bit more uh, resilient to the effects um, of that. I guess it's a gas, um, and uh, and his his as we find out, of course, his his younger brother um, tries to stab um, Shoki in the back, and sort of nullify that effect from taking place so defeating Shoki they um, end up stealing the shuttle and using it to just physically just crash into the castle um, so <laughs> they they don't make it to like the throne room but it's nearby and I think they just have to run down a little a single hall um, to, to meet up with uh, our physically present uh, main antagonist uh, Raime and we get the the requisite um, villainous monologue uh, on the part of Raime, whose English voice actor uh, it's similar um, to the to the Japanese actor in this in a few of these scenes, but I think it's a little bit more over the top. Um, it sounded he sounded a little bit more. Um, Intimidating, I think in, in Japanese he's it, it's played a little bit, um, a little bit hammed up in the English performance. Um, but I mean, regardless, it, it wasn't wasn't uh, terribly bad. Um, we get uh, here's uh, the infamous 
telekinetic powers um, that he's able to use with his um, spirit power enhancing hand. I don't know if it's a glove or I think it's just a mechanical hand, but um, it's a pretty good, uh, you know, little laser light show. Um, again, probably 15 seconds of um, rotoscope effect going on here. So we can definitely see that this would have been um, fairly time consuming to, to do this part. Uh, he, he fights back and forth um, with between Shiranui and uh, Akagi and a little bit more with uh, Jiromaru, but unfortunately uh, our boy doesn't doesn't uh, make it too far and he is backstabbed uh, by Raime. Um, get a hand right through his spine. Uh, don't, you don't really recover from that. And um, unfortunately, since Jiromaru is not a mechanical ninja, he uh, doesn't make it. But we do, um, we meet again with the, with the princess. We've had a few scenes with her that I um, kind of skipped over uh, just for sake of brevity. Um, her character overall is uh, refreshingly, she's a, a strong um, character. And uh, that's something we can, at this point, definitely say is a trademark of um, Amamiya Keita. Uh, He's, you know, he's built an entire Zerum franchise around uh, the character of Iria. And uh, Princess Saki, uh, in this case, is no less uh, strong um, as far as her will is concerned. And she's a... Well, we're, we're kind of given the idea that she is a, um, a capable fighter in her own right. She's when she's captured and kind of held prisoner in this weird tree, um, she asks, uh, earlier, this is a scene from earlier, she asks uh, Raime if she could at least, you know, change her outfit because she's in a more ceremonial um, garb. But uh, apparently she had hidden underneath her um, outer robes uh, a more... And I guess it's like a Kunoichi um, sort of female ninja esque outfit. Um, there, there's a few scenes in the in the making of documentary that kind of uh, intimate that the other cast members uh, thought that the outfit was uh, a little bit too uh, risque, but um, the the actress herself seemed to like think it was cool. Um, and enjoyed wearing it. It um, it's more like just basically a little vest. It's a vest and some like leggings. Um, but she did have, I think she has two daggers, or maybe she stole them from a ninja. But she she does a little bit of fighting of her own once um, she's freed by um, her her compatriots. So she's not without her own um, battle skills. Uh, visible on the screen as opposed to just you know being kind of mentioned that she's sort of a warrior princess um, which is good it's, it's nice that they have that and each of the characters are a little bit more than just one dimensional um, she's not specifically you know, like a damsel in distress um, and can hold her own uh, provided she's just not blindsided and you know when she was originally kidnapped
So I think that brings us to the um, the final scene. Uh, Raime is, of course, um, he's defeated by um, Shiranui uh, and Akagi working in concert uh, after the death of um, Jiromaru. And then um, Shoki, uh, Shoki returns. Um, we... we when we last saw him in his death scene, uh, the camera lingered on his hand, of course, and it um, it twitched a little bit. So we're we're clued in that you know he, he may have not been finished off um, in that in the beginning section. Um, however, the Dark Lord uh, is in the process of being revived. The, the solar eclipse begins to occur, and the dark energy from the other dimension um, enters uh, Shoki's body instead of uh, the princess who's been removed from the um, sacrificial oak uh, binding, I guess. And uh, Shoki being empowered by the Dark Lord or I guess being taken over um, is completely surrounded in like a sort of green lightning energy as well as a blue aura. Um, This, of course, is all... um, rotoscoped and it it lasts for the duration of the the final fight scene which goes on for a few minutes so i I believe this is the the portion where the director was saying that the um the art team had had a difficult time um continually like having to you know insert the the rotoscoping if you're not aware is, is frame by frame um hand drawn over the um the film cells or I guess the stock, the film stock. And uh, as it's frame by frame, you have to kind of, you're flip booking it uh, to to make it um, uh, continuous. But uh, it's a great effect. Uh, I mentioned this before, that it's like some of my my favorite work is when they do um, rotoscope. Uh, It's, I guess it's slightly outside of the realm of um, this particular sci-fi um, podcast, but uh, the roughly the same era. The film The Last Dragon, I think, is one of my, one of my favorite um, kung fu movies, um, and it, that heavily features um, rotoscoping. Uh, so there's a little plug, I guess, for go watch The Last Dragon. It was um, if you like rotoscoping, it's there. Um, so this this final fight scene uh, ends, of course, with uh, Shoki, the Dark Lord Shoki, having his uh, his head cut off. And um, they all escape the uh, the castle as it begins to explode and turn into a giant mechanical spider, and that was cool. Uh, I I feel bad just keep saying I'm keep saying cool, but um, it's visually um, stunning, and I think at the time it would have been a really neat thing to to watch. You know, this it's it's all done in slow motion because. Um, the actual transformation of this, they had uh, built a to scale model of the the castle, and it was um, kind of put up on sort of the stilt structure, um, maybe like two meters two meters off the ground or so. But uh, they actually b- built the mechanical structure within the within the castle and then had it burst out of its um housing i guess which i don't know which the 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 frame the framework is exposed um and 
they just sort of filmed it in slow motion exploding and they used a lot of pyrotechnics. Um, it, was, it was interesting to, to watch when they had that in the making of it and I was glad that that was included. But uh, yeah, the, the, the castle is going to turn into a giant spider and I'm, as far as I can tell... The um, the Dark Overlord, when he was defeated inside of Shoki, I think he took possession of the castle. It's that's what I got from what was going on. There definitely there's no voiceover or anything. It's just something happening on screen. So you'd have to that's if you watch this, um, let me know if you thought that the Dark Overlord uh, took over the castle and was just gonna walk around like a giant spider castle. Um, and then uh, one thing that is I forgot to mention so the Suave clan when they sent in the small rescue team they're they're told by um Akagi uh they 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 had built this giant cannon in order to combat the, the fortress originally that was the plan was to just blow it up but um they had to kind of hold off on their plan uh, not only because the princess, the princess was kidnapped, but in in the process of her of her kidnapping, the um, the ninja army when they came in on their flying sled uh, destroyed the um, powder barrels that were going to be used to to power the cannon. So the the group was delayed uh, because they, they they needed to send out. Uh, people to go retrieve more um powder kegs i guess um and the cannon itself was a, a um, experimental thing it uh i think in more than one sense it's experimental within the film but its design is also reminiscent of the maduradin um mobile cannons uh that we see in zerum uh more notably in the the Zerum uh, animated series, so I think that that design choice um, and sensibility is something that's carried on into into some of his later works. So, because it's used here first, um, and it's used to good effect, uh, practical effect wise. Um, I don't know how large the the miniatures were for this, but um, they, they was probably substantial. If if the the construction of the castle was anything to go by, uh, as well as the earlier in the opening of the film, the when the the battle's taking place in the the volcanic field, the Suave are using a mobile castle wall. I guess um, would be what you would what it looks like, and the ninjas army were using um well they looked like uh atst walkers from star wars however uh what they had done was they put um replicas of shrines like small shrines on top of uh walking legs so really instead of like direct um cribbing of the atsts uh from Star Wars, they're just walking shrines with cannons on them. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's it's interesting enough that they they use those, and that's not something that we see really in later works, aside from them using the um, inflatable 
bamboo hovercrafts in uh, in the Zerum series. Um, that, I mean, that pretty much wraps up the the events of the film. Uh, we have the the defeat of the Dark Overlord because they they fire the cannon, which they've loaded with an extra um, barrel of powder, so it can fire. It's supposed to be a fifth shot, is what they say, but I think they're just what in effect it's doing is the power of five shots. It's just one giant fireball that uh, obliterates the um, the spider fortress. Uh, and then one one weird bit, since they are doing practical effects um, for the pr- for pretty much most of the film, um, miniatures and and things on uh, wires, the the flying sled that um, the princess uh, Akagi Shiranui and unfortunately the the body of his um, younger brother Jiromaru are in as they flee the fortress is um, it's an open top design where it looks sort of. It looks sort of like the uh, the battle tents that um, had been used previously in the film, and um, the the ensuing fireball um, explosion from the the cannon they're using, the the sled like barely escapes it. But since they're using an actual onset fireball, uh, it lights the bottom of the sled on fire. And all I could think of was that there's no shielding or nothing on top of the sled so like everyone on top of it would have been immolated because they were pretty much caught in the fireball uh yeah that's that's the movie that's um mirai ninja uh aka cyber ninja um i don't know i had a lot of fun i think talking about this one i wish there was a if the film was more than like 90 minutes long i don't know it may have been shorter than that actually uh it may have left me with a little bit more to kind of dig into um, aside from the astrological bits with the, with the, with the Zodiac signs. Um, there wasn't a whole lot here. Again, everything looks fun. Uh, it's, it's a fun little film. It's a simple plot. It's they're small group of people infiltrating a castle to, you know, rescue a princess and defeat a, a big enemy. So it's a basic in that regard. Um, but I don't think that it's missing anything. Uh, even were this like a two hour long, you know, cinematic epic with a higher budget, it would have probably lost some of its charm um, in that case. And I think that by using these practical effects and the rotoscoping and these kind of hand techniques, uh, it trumps any sort of um, more modern day CG heavy affair. Uh, it, it also keeps the film from really aging as much. This is easy to watch. Um, you know, we it's no no real accident. I think that um, they're being inspired and in using some of the techniques that you find in something like Star Wars uh, or The Predator. Um, or even Terminator. A lot of those early films, those, uh, I guess, early early to mid '80s films, um, did rely on hand crafted um, miniatures uh, and that kind of thing, and, and sort of um, matte paintings and backdrops and just the stuff um, of cinema that makes it otherworldly, but still kind of grounds it in things that you could. Um, you know, you could do this. I, I don't want to say you can do it yourself. Uh, that, that's difficult. But that 
idea of this being sort of handcrafted. That's what that's the effect that this lends to this these um these movies and why I think that you could you know return and watch this uh, you know it's well over thirty years uh, after this movie came out and it's it's just you know it's just as good I think um, as it would have been uh, back in nineteen eighty eight. Uh, I think that I think that'll wrap us up for both uh, Mary Ninja and season one of Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or anything from from this first season, uh, I'll take those into account. And while I'm not going to do like a res- uh, retrospective episode on this season, uh, I can address them um, in the end of uh, episode one for uh, season two, which uh, should be coming up within about a week. We'll be taking a look at uh, Cyber City o Edo 808. Um, for our first uh, episode of season two coming up. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, uh, you can find us at hrssd.fireside.fm or it's probably easier to contact myself directly on Twitter at sentinot underscore plus. The show itself also has a Twitter, which is at rockspacedandy. Feel free to, the DMs are open, so you can send uh, any comments to either myself or directly to the um the podcast twitter and we'll uh if there's any questions or anything we'll take a look at them and answer them uh, on the next show that's us signing off